Hi, good to have you on the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I am a financial journalist and I have been for more than 17 years. And I recently wrote my first book. It's called Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. <laughs> so um, could you please share with us the story behind like how you got into finance? Sure. I I have always been a journalist since I graduated from college. And that how come? Was <laughs> Why did I want to be a journalist? Well, I will tell you, I initially wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I had a double major in journalism and Russian studies. Cool. And when I was starting college, it was 1991. So the Soviet Union was falling apart. And it. I was interested in, in writing. I liked the idea of reporting, talking to people, sharing their stories. And I was really intrigued by Russia and the Soviet Union. It just seemed like a very interesting part of the world. And as someone who wanted to be a journalist, working there seemed appealing. However, I did change my mind. I, After spending a semester there and then a summer there, I decided I did not want to become a journalist in Russia. Um, Why? <laughs> Was it so bad over there? Or? No, no, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so bad. And certainly when I was there in the early 90s, it was very different from what it is now. But it was just so hard to get information. And mm. I also realized that if I was going to go down that path, you don't start out as a foreign correspondent. This is a job you have to work your way up to. And I, I realized that You know, even though I wasn't sure, you know, when or whether I was going to get married, it was certainly something I wanted in my life. I wanted to have a family. And so knowing that if I wanted to get married, if I wanted to have a family, getting that job as a foreign correspondent would have been difficult. I would have been had to have been married to another journalist who would be willing to, you know, be stationed in another country, too. And it just it just seemed really complicated. And so I decided to just stay in the United States. And I was working first as a newspaper at a newspaper and then. Um, was living in Washington, D.C., and while I was there, I ended up writing uh, for Dow Jones Newswires, writing about business, and I didn't have any background in business. Like I said, my majors were journalism and Russian studies. American University had a master's program where you could get your master's in journalism and then pick a specialty. So I chose economic journalism so I could take all those courses that I avoided in college, economics, statistics, business, and I was fortunate because my husband was getting his doctorate in economics at the same time. So I knew I had a really good tutor, <laughs> someone who could help me if I was struggling. But, you know, I ended up doing just fine in all of my economics and statistic courses, got my master's in economic journalism and graduated in 2000. No, sorry, 2001, mm -hmm. as we were heading into a recession. So I couldn't get my job back with Dow Jones. They had a hiring freeze. Other outlets had hiring freezes. Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine was looking for an editor and a writer for its website. Kiplinger's like very big in America, yes, isn't it? Yes, very like, big, very big. It's, um, it is the oldest personal finance magazine, and it is still around, one of the few still around. And I was hired as a writer for its website. They took a chance cool. on me, even though I had no experience writing about personal finance, and that's, that's how I learned about personal finance, everything there. I was there for 14 years. And then a few years ago, started writing for Go Banking Rates, which is a personal finance website in California. And so that's that's kind of my story in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so um, could you please share with us, like, what have been in your career so far? What have been the, the worst moments for you? And what have been the best moments? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. The worst moments. That's a tough question. I love asking uh, tough questions. Oh, my gosh. That's a, <laughs> that's a hard one. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if there have necessarily been any worst moments because of the type of writing that I do. I'm not doing breaking news reporting, so I haven't had to cover anything that has been you know, extremely difficult, you know, no tragedies or anything like that. Um, I tell you, though, it was certainly when I started at Kiplinger's, less than a month after starting to work there, the September 11th attacks happened. 
And I remember coming into work and seeing something come across the newswires about a plane hitting one of the World Trade Towers. And I thought initially it was just a small plane. But then, you know, my husband started calling me. He's like, oh, my gosh, you have to turn on the TV and see what's happening. And I was new at Kiplinger's. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't. I've got work to do. I, <laughs> I have to do my work. I, you know, I think it's just, it's nothing big. And he's like, no, you really need to go turn on the TV. And so I grabbed my my editor and I said, you know, something's happening. We need to turn on the TV. And I remember watching it and watching as the other plane hit. And there was such a feeling of panic. And that day, being in Washington, D.C., where there was also an attack on the Pentagon, it was surreal. And for the longest time after that, it, just watching the markets and not knowing what was going on, it was it was a difficult time to be writing about personal finance and money because there was so much uncertainty. And at the time, there were probably around 14 or 15 other personal finance type magazines after that it went down to just three because those other publications folded. It was Kiplinger's money and smart money and then smart money dropped out. So certainly there has been, I have been worried at times. Wow. Is this, is this field going to continue? Are people still going to want to read about personal finance after having watched so many other magazines fold? But what's been interesting is watching the event of online journalism and especially blogs. There are so many personal finance blogs now that never even existed when I got my start in journalism. And that's been great to watch because I feel like that has made personal finance accessible to so many more people. So, you know, kind of going from that point where this low point where we didn't even know what was happening with the economy, the stock market, watching all these other personal finance publications folding to this point now where there really seems to be a huge appetite for personal finance and more and more people are getting into it, sharing their stories. So I like that. I like how personal finance has become. That's the best part. Watching it become much more accessible to people. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of people who are struggling with their finances and we just have to continue getting the word out to people the importance of managing your money well, saving for the future. Uh, it's still a message that pe- that needs to be heard. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, it's so amazing that the personal finance space is growing. But um, I think there are quite a few like very valuable sites out there that are posting like high quality content on personal finance. But I also think there's a lot of bogus out there. Like you can get rich by saving two dollars on your Starbucks cup of coffee. Like <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So. Uh, <laughs> This is true. And it's you have to be very careful about the information that you choose to to read and to consume. Um, And so, yeah, you do need to be picky. And that comes with any type of news that you are reading and consuming and listening to, because, you know, you want to choose a reputable website, especially when it comes to advice about your money. Yeah, especially there. So, um could you please share with us? I think everyone who is listening to this right now would love to hear, like, um, why did you write the book in the first place? And, yeah, share with us the story behind, like, the book and all the good things. So Certainly. So I wrote my book, Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, because I did not have detailed conversations with my mother about her finances before she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I I did have a conversation with her. I was living in D.C. My husband and I moved back to Kentucky, which is my home state. And this was before she was having any memory problems. And I did have a conversation with her about getting long-term care insurance, what which is what we can use in America to help pay for long-term care, whether it's at home with a home health aid, whether it's an assisted living facility, a nursing home. And she took my advice. She looked into it, but she couldn't qualify for it because she had another health issue that made her too high risk. And looking back now, I realize I should have sat down with her and had a conversation about how she would ever pay for that sort of care. She needed it. She and my dad were divorced. He had actually passed away. And so she was on her own. And and long term care is incredibly expensive incredibly expensive like how expensive like how expensive so she has been in assisted living now for six years she was diagnosed with alzheimer's 11 years ago 
we pay $4,500 a month for assisted living. And because we are in Kentucky where it's the cost of living is low, it's a lot cheaper than in other places. I mean, people in New York city, LA. Oh gosh. I can't even imagine, you know, we're talking 7,000, $8,000 a month. If you're in a nursing a month, a month. Yes. And so a lot, it is. And they're just, there's so many things that go into helping your parents manage their finances if they ever get to a point where they cannot make those decisions on their own. And if you haven't had those conversations beforehand, you might not even be legally able to step in and help them out. And it's not just that. I mean, certainly everyone dies. And if you die without a will, then your family members have to figure out how to deal with everything that's been left behind. And that can lead to fighting, you know, just your parents might not have enough save for retirement and they might need your help. And you need to know these things before that situation arises so that you can be prepared. So you have a plan. And because I had not had these conversations with my mom until she started having issues, I had to play detective to figure out her finances. I had to make decisions for her and it would have been so much easier Mm. if I had gotten her input beforehand. I mean, of course we had conversations, but she would forget them. Like Mm. when the conversation about assisted living came up, I would, and I realized she needed to have around the clock care. Mm. She was already at the point where I could tell her, you know, mom, I think it's, it's time for you to be in a place where you can get care at all times, you know, not just living with me anymore because she was living with me, we'd have the conversations and she would forget. So really I was making those decisions for her. And even though I was trying to do it with, of course, her best interest, Mm. I still felt uncomfortable making those decisions for her. I would have felt so much better if we had had the conversations beforehand to know what she wanted. So I was... I wanted to write the book because I wanted to help guide people through these conversations. I wanted to help people realize what they needed to be talking about because you don't know what you don't know. I had to figure mm. this all these things out as I went along. And so in America, with, with such a large number of baby boomers who are aging, heading into retirement, already into already in retirement, their kids are going to find themselves mm. in a position where they're going to have to get involved with their parents' finances. And if they're not having these conversations before that emergency arises, it's going to be so difficult. So mm. that is why I wrote the book, to help people have the conversations I didn't have soon enough with my own mother. And a lot of people are really everyone's going to need to have this conversation with their parents. If your parents are still alive, you need to be talking to them about their finances. And I know money is a taboo topic and it's hard to have these conversations. So I'm trying to encourage people to have them, help them get over their fears about having these conversations and give them ways to start the conversation without it being so awkward. Mm. And uh, Karen, I was so excited to talk with you about all that because um, I can also speak for personal about uh, from my personal experience because um, my father was an entrepreneur and he died when I was like nine or ten or something, and um, he never invested in like life savings. So uh, my my mom like struggled like through all my childhood. We always had money, but when he passed away, we obviously had no money and he wasn't saving anything. So I know how important this topic is and i think um everyone who's listening to this right now should should really pay attention so wow and i'm sorry you i'm sorry you had to go through that certainly and hopefully maybe you've had i don't know if you're if your mother's still alive but hopefully you're you're talking to her about what role she might be expecting you to play i i, I haven't i haven't to be honest <laughs> because it's awkward, right? I mean, she's listening you... to, to every episode, so <laughs> <laughs> I have to probably. <laughs> it is. It's certain. It's awkward though. Kids think, "How in the world am I going to talk to my parents about this?" Because they look at me as the child. Even if you're an adult and you're successful, you you do realize, I think, that your parents still look at you as the kid, and you don't want to overstep your bounds and and you certainly don't want to feel like 
Like, yeah, I don't, don't want, want to feel like you're being nosy. About money, like. <laughs> but but there are ways to do it without it being awkward, without offending your parents. And certainly you can't, like, if you're still young and in your 20s, one of the best ways to start the conversation is to ask your parents for advice. Because that's what parents love to do, give their kids advice. So you can, right, because you can say, hey, you know, mom and dad, I just started this new job and I can, they offer me a retirement plan at work. Should I be saving in that retirement plan? And your parents' answers are going to give you clues to about what they've done. And you just keep the conversation going from there. Or you can just simply, and this works. Ask because for I advice. Have, right, ask for advice or another easy way to do it, ask about those what if scenarios. I had a friend who did this recently with her mother, who also is single because her parents are divorced. And she said, Mom, what if something happened to you? What if you were in the hospital and I needed to pay your bills for you? How would that work? And her mother said to her, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because I never even thought about that. And then she went home and started making a list of all her accounts and how to access them. So it's these you know, finding these little ways to start the conversation so it's natural. The what if, the asking for advice, telling a story about someone you know who had to care for a parent or whose parent died without a will. And then saying to your parents, I want to make sure this doesn't happen to us. Let's have a conversation. Very persuasive, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's so, but the most important thing to remember is to be respectful. Because these are your parents. You don't want to come in and criticize them for mistakes they've made. Oh, my gosh, mom and dad, I'm so worried you haven't saved anything for retirement. And now you're going to expect me to help you out. That's not the way you want to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. You want to be respectful and talk to your parents the same way you would want your kids to talk to you. And I also think um, if you just try to teach them like right away, like they wouldn't take it seriously, like at all, like. My, my, my mom would say, like, shut up. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. right. And you don't, course, you but... don't want to put them on the defensive. You know, you don't want to criticize anything they've done because, I mean, certainly your parents might have their financial act together, but they might not. And that would be a reason they would be reluctant to talk to you because they might be embarrassed. So you don't want to look like you are criticizing them because if they feel like you are, that you are being condescending, they're going to shut down immediately. And that it, it conversation is going right? to go nowhere. Yes, of course. It totally back for us because um, then they are not like uh, rational at all. And they're like quite emotional. And um, I think uh, it, it, the, the conversation like uh, wouldn't be of any help probably. Like if you are criticizing them. And, yeah. So um, could you please speak about like how do the first chapters look like for everybody, uh, for everyone who, is, who isn't familiar with your book? Sure. So the first thing that I tell people to do mm -hmm. is to get over their fears of having this conversation because mm -hmm. surveys have found that a majority of adults, and I'm talking an overwhelming majority, three quarters of adults have not had detailed conversations with their parents about their finances. And one of the reasons is because they are afraid. They're afraid their parents are going to think they're being nosy or greedy or that it's going to hurt their relationship. And as I said, if you approach the conversation out of love, letting, know, letting your parents know that you want to talk to them because you're looking out for their best interest. You want to ensure that they have a plan, that you know what role they expect you to play. If you let them know you're having, you want to have this conversation because you care about them and because you want to help them if they ever need help, most likely they're not going to think you're being greedy or you're being nosy. Most likely they will not get angry with you. Now, some parents might open up and start talking right away. They might actually say, you know what, I've been meaning to have this conversation with you because there are. I've had plenty of older adults who've reached out to me since I wrote the book and said, hey, I've been wanting to have this conversation with my kids. My kids aren't interested. So you might find that your parents are incredibly receptive. Of course, there will be parents who don't want to talk and it can take time. So that's why it's better to start having or trying to have these conversations sooner rather than later, because it can take a while to get through to your parents if they are reluctant to talk about money. You might have to try several different approaches. And it could take, honestly, it could take years if your parents are resistant. And unfortunately, there will be some parents who refuse to open up. And, and what and, would you 
Go ahead. I was just going to, you were probably going to say, what would you say to those people whose parents just Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so a couple of different things you can do. Your parents might not want to talk to you, but they might be willing to talk to a third party. So you mm-hmm. might want to reach out to a family member, a family friend. It might not be you, but it might be another sibling who has a better relationship with your parents. You might want to reach out to a financial professional. Maybe your parents are already working with a financial planner or an attorney. Now, that financial professional cannot share details about your parents' finances with you, but you can reach out to them and say, hey, could you please encourage my mom and dad to at least share some information with us? Let us know if they have a will. Let us know what sort of planning they've done. You know, maybe reaching out to a clergy member, their their priest, their rabbi, someone they trust Hmm. and asking that person to please encourage your parents to share some information with you. Write it down. They might not want to talk to you, but they might be willing to make a list of their accounts and put it someplace safe and tell you under what conditions you can access it because that lets them maintain control. And a lot of this is about control. They don't want to give up that control to their kids. And so tell them, look, I don't need this information right now, but if you can just write it down for me and tell me how to access it in case there is an emergency, that might make it a lot easier for them. Now, of course, I was going to say, you know, some parents might not even want to do that. And you have to just tell yourself, you know what, I've tried. And if worse comes to worse and they're unwilling to talk and there is that emergency, you know, it might come down to you having to say, look, mom and dad, I love you. I've tried to have conversations and I wanted to have these conversations so that I could prepare my own finances in case something happened. But, you know, you didn't want to talk and there's only so much I can do at this point. Because you have to remember your finances take priority. You cannot jeopardize your own finances to bail your parents out if they ever if it ever comes to that. And I also think a big hurdle is that everybody thinks they're an expert on finance, right? <laughs> there are certainly plenty of people who will admit that they are not an expert. And that okay. might be a reason why they don't want to have the conversation because they think, I can't talk to my parents about money because I don't know anything about it. So, you know, one of the things I do is tell people in my book what sort of information they need to gather from their parents. And I explain those legal documents, what a will is, what power of attorney is, what a living will is, and why these documents are so important. So you don't have to be an expert to have and these I, conversations. And I think a lot of parents, like, don't take those things, like, really seriously. Because, for instance, I know my mom hasn't a will, and she's, like, in her mid-40s. Uh, and um, yeah, but she's I, I don't think she doesn't care. Like I have to be like, <laughs> um, but 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 I think uh, they don't take it as seriously as they probably should. And especially right. like when they have a, a property and a house and a car and yeah, somebody yeah. said. So. Yes. And the thing that you can say, and I don't know how I don't know how the laws work in Germany, but certainly in the United States. If you die without a will, guess what? Your state has a will for you. State laws will spell out who gets That's what. Crazy. Right. Like in Germany, right. I think like the kids uh, have to like do like fifty-fifty. Like um, yeah. So Share it's not everything. always it's not always fifty-fifty. So if your parents think, oh, if I die, you know, my spouse gets this much, and my kids get this much, or my spouse gets everything. It varies from state to state. And so if you want to have a say, and you can tell this to your parents, look, you know, and even if they don't have a lot, if they want to have a say in who gets what, they need to put it in writing. Yeah. They need to put it in writing. And, and it's funny because people always think, oh, all my family members get along. They can just figure it out. You know, every estate planning attorney I've talked to always tells me, you know, you think your family gets along until someone dies. And then everyone starts fighting and people will fight over the smallest things. And so it's important to let your parents know, look, mom and dad, if you care about who gets what, even if it's just your car, (laughs) you've got to put it in writing. So there's no question so that a judge isn't going to decide for you. Mm. So, So, um, we need to get over the fear of having this conversation 
but what is the next step? What is the next step? So the next step is don't wait. Don't wait until that emergency happens because emotions are going to be running high. You might not have a plan in place. You might not be able to access your parents' bank accounts to pay those bills for them. And the biggest hurdle to overcome are the legal obstacles. So more important than the will are two other documents, the power of attorney document and the living will, which is also called an advanced healthcare directive. A power of attorney document lets you name someone to make financial decisions for you if you can't. You have to be mentally competent to sign this document. So with my mother, I mean, we just barely did this in time. As she was starting to have memory issues, I told her we need to get in to meet with an attorney to update all her legal documents. And she did. She was still competent enough to sign the documents. And she named my sister and me her power of attorney. If she had not done that before her Alzheimer's progressed to a point where she was no longer competent, I would have had to go to court to be named her conservator to make financial decisions for her. And, that and would have, how, what, what would the, the court decide? Like, don't say like usually like say, OK, like you have all the rights or like, yeah, how does so that? So you have first of all, you have to prove that your parent is no longer mentally competent to make decisions on his or her own. So you have to get a doctor there to testify. I have a friend who did this and he had to get a neuropsychologist to testify for his father. He hired an attorney for his father himself. He spent $10,000 and nine months going through this process. Whoa, okay. And then every No, it year, isn't so easy. Like, oh, I, no, no. Okay. It's They do a background check. They need to make sure that you're not going to get in there and start mismanaging your parents' finances very difficult process. It can be very expensive. And the thing is, from that point on, you have to file a report with the court every single year detailing how you spend your parents' money for their care, for for their bills. As power of attorney for my mother, I simply take the document and you have to have the document. I go to her bank. I go to all her financial institutions and I say, I am my mother's power of attorney. She has Alzheimer's. She's no longer able to make decisions on her own. They say, okay, some of them make you sign their own documents, but basically I am now the person in control of her finances. I have access to her accounts. I pay her bills. I manage all of her money. I don't have to file a report with the court every year. I just simply step in and start managing her money for her. It's that simple because we spent a little bit of money to get those documents drafted while she was still competent enough to sign them rather than wait until the point where she couldn't do it and having to go through the court system. You know, in that other document that I mentioned, the advanced healthcare directive, the living will, that lets you name someone to make healthcare decisions for you. And it also spells out what sort of end of life medical care you do or do not want. So, you know, your parents might say, well, why do I need to do that? Can't you just talk to the doctor for me? Well, no, not necessarily. Whenever I have to take my mother in to the hospital to get surgery, the first question they ask, are you your mother's healthcare power of attorney? They wouldn't talk to me if I had not already been designated her healthcare power of attorney. And, and it's so important too to spell out whether you want to be on life support. You know, do you want to be resuscitated? You don't want your family members having to make these decisions for you. It's a very difficult decision to make. And so if you can put that in writing while you're still competent enough to make that decision, it's going to make everything's so much easier for your loved ones because you know we've had major court battles in the u.s when there are families who when there's someone who's on life support and some family members think that it's just time to let that person go and other family members who just want to keep them on the support for years and years and years and it ends up you know tearing families apart so you want you want to put all these things in writing to make it easier for your loved ones so you want to let your parents know please i want to know what your wishes are I would love it if you could meet with an attorney and get all these documents drafted so that you can name someone you trust to make financial and healthcare decisions for you, whether it's me, whether it's my siblings, whether it's someone else. This needs to be your decision. Mm. 
So I think um, a lot of those things are translatable in many countries around the world. But um, like most of our listeners are from the U.S. anyway. So um, could you please share with us like, okay, we, we have to get over the fear. We, we shouldn't wait at all. We have to talk to them like right away. So I definitely know uh, whom I'm talking to after the podcast. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and what are the next things that uh, really change that's the mind of the other person or of our parents. So, so, you know, you need to have the conversation. So how do you start it? What do you say? I already mentioned a couple ways, asking your parents for advice. You could ask them about those what if scenarios. You could share a story about someone like the man I mentioned who did not have power of attorney for his father mm-hmm. before he developed Alzheimer's and had to spend $10,000 going through the court process. Stories are a great way to get the conversation started. But if your parents are reluctant to talk about money, you could talk about a big picture issue instead. Not how much have you saved for retirement, but hey, mom and dad, what does retirement look like for you? Or they're already mm. retired. Are you? How's retirement going for you? Mm. And their answer will likely give you a clue. They might say, it's going great. We're doing all the traveling we wanted to do. We're so glad we saved enough for our retirement or we're so glad we have that pension so that we can live comfortably. Or they might say, wow, retirement's not going at all like we hoped. And then you say, why? Well, why not? Well, we're, we find that we travel is expensive and we can't do it or, you know, this we're bored or whatever. And you just let the conversation go from there. If they're reluctant to talk about money, the conversation does not need to be about dollars and cents. It needs to be about the bigger picture issues to get Mm. them comfortable talking, to get them to trust you with this baby steps topic, baby steps, baby Mm. steps, certainly baby steps. You know, another thing that you could do is actually offer to help them out. Maybe you ask them about that what if scenario, what if something happens and I need to pay the pills for you? What does that look like? Do I need to write checks for you or is everything set up online? And if they're still writing checks to pay all their bills, maybe you could offer to help them set up online banking. Offer to assist them with something. Take an annoying financial task off their plate. Mom and dad, you know what? I know taxes are a pain in the butt to do. So you know what? Give me your documents and I'll take them to my accountant and help make sure that your taxes get filed this year. Mm. And that's going to give you insight into a lot of information about their finances, but offer to be helpful, (laughs) Mm. you know, or offer them to, you know, to help if they, if they have a lot of debt and they're in retirement, maybe you could refer them to a credit counselor because we have a lot of those in the U S there's the national foundation for credit counselors And they have a network of free and low-cost credit counselors throughout the United States. You could refer them to a credit counselor to help them. You could help them go online and check their credit report. Mm. Again, those baby steps. Finding a way to get them comfortable about with talking to you about their finances. And like I said, it's not about asking them how much is in their bank account, but at least finding out where they bank and 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 do they have resources to support themselves. Hmm. The tougher conversations come about long-term care, but it's so important to ask your parents about what sort of care they would want if they ever need it. And like I said, this is not the conversation I had with my mom before she developed Alzheimer's. So I was having to make those decisions for her. But so many people are going to end up needing long-term care as they age. More than half of adults who are age 65 will need long-term care at some point. More than half? More than half. More than half. And the average length of long-term care that people need. Yeah, that. The average length of care is three years. For women, it tends to be longer. And as I already said, it's incredibly expensive. Most people count on family members to provide that care because they don't have the resources to pay for care. Medicare does not pay for long-term care. Mm. It will pay for your health care needs in retirement, but it, is not, it does not pay for long-term care. Long-term care insurance will. There are a couple of other types. There's a, you can get a life insurance policy with a long-term care benefit, but most people end up counting on family members 
to care for them. And that can be a full-time job. I was just thinking about a close friend of mine who is now in his uh, mid-twenties, but um, in his early twenties for for three or four years, he took care of his grandmother and she had Alzheimer's. And what it was like, he made sure, like he was like dealing with everything in her life. And he was in his early twenties and this guy has so much respect for me, but I think it's incredible. Like, Man, like uh, everybody is partying and dating, and <laughs> he took care of his grandmother. So, um, I think people I've talked to him like several times about that to- uh, about this topic, and um, I think people can't imagine like uh, how how the life of uh, a relative could look like if this happens. So, and that's why it's so important to talk to your parents because yeah. if they are counting on you. Then you, if, if, if this is something you're willing to do, if you are willing to help out your parents and if they're counting on you, you need to start making adjustments in your life now. Mm-hmm. You might have to be prepared to take some time off from work to care for a parent. Now, we, we have laws in the United States that the Family Leave Act so that you you have a certain amount of time that you can take off from your job to care for a family member without losing that job, most employers will not pay you during that period. But it's certainly worth checking into it to see whether your employer will pay you while you're taking family leave, because if that option is available to you, you want to take advantage of it. But but it probably doesn't last for four years, like in no. his case, or three years or something like that. So No, it does not. It does yeah. not. But the thing is, if, if you know, you can start creating this plan. If your parent, if and they might never need your help, but if you have a plan, you will be prepared. You won't be scrambling. You can look into what sort of resources are available in their community because there are resources out there. There, there's something called adult daycare services, and it's a lot cheaper than hiring someone to come in and take care of your parents during the day. They, it's babysitting for adults, so they come, they take you to a community center watch you during the day. So if you're working during the day, this can be a low cost option for care for your parents. You know, their Medicaid will pay for long-term care at home or in a nursing home. It will not typically pay for assisted living, but it will pay for the nursing home care. So if your parents are in a point in their dementia or some other disease that you know prevents them from being able to care for themselves if they're at the point where they need that skilled nursing care and they have very low income Mm. look into medicaid to see if it will pay for that so exploring your options knowing what's available and having that plan on how to you know stretch their resources to pay for things what you can do maybe it means you know, not downsizing into that smaller house once your kids go off to college, staying in your house so you can move your parents in with you to make it easier. Just having these discussions so that you can come up with a plan. It's so important. So um, we've talked about like having this conversation a lot with, with our parents, but um, what are the things that we should actually tell them? Like what, what, how does the advice look like? And could you please also tie this with, with your personal story if you feel comfortable and share with us like how does it look like if we are taking care of a person who has Alzheimer's? Like what are the costs that we can expect and what are the struggles that we might expect? So, Sure. So the most important thing you need to find out from your parents, mom and dad, do you have a will, power of attorney, advanced health care directive, or living will? If they do not, encourage them to meet with an attorney so they can have these documents drafted. If they have them, that's awesome. You want to find out where these documents are stored and how to access them when something happens. That's the most important thing. And if that's the only thing you can find out, find out if they have those legal documents. And if they say to you, oh, you know, this is going to cost me money. I don't want to have to do it. Well, there are free and low cost options available online. It's certainly better to meet with an attorney. And if you have the financial means to pay for it, you might offer to have those documents drafted for them as a gift. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas, mom and dad. It's so important for me to know that your wishes are in writing. So I would like to pay for an attorney to mm-hmm. have these documents drafted for you. 
if they don't want to do it. That's certainly something you can do. So you want to find that out. Like I said, you want to ask your parents, where are you, where do you bank? You know, what sort of, what sort of bills do you have? Are you still, do you still have debt? What sort of insurance policies you have? And if you can get them to make a list of everything Mm. and they don't have to give it to you now, put it someplace safe with those legal documents and tell you how to access it. Because honestly, the more information you have, the better able you will be to step in and help them if they ever need help. I, because I manage my mom's finances, I have to know everything, her social security number, her Medicare number, every financial account she has. Because I had not had this conversation with her before she was starting to forget things, she had a financial account that I didn't even know existed. And it was almost turned over to the state as unclaimed property. We had, yes, we had moved. And so letters were going to our old address. And this is when she was living with us. So all her mail was coming to me. Letters were going to that old house. And fortunately, the owners reached out to us and said, hey, we keep getting mail from your, for your mom. So we got the mail. Turns out there was an account and they were trying to reach us. It had $50,000 in it. And I didn't even know it existed. And it was almost turned over to the state as unclaimed property. So I had to jump through some hoops to get access to this account. Even though I was power of attorney, they made me go through a, a, an extra layer to get to get access to this account. And I did. And they helped pay for almost a year's worth of care, a year's worth of her assisted living care. But I didn't even know it existed because I had not sat down with her. I Like I said, I had to play detective and figure out what accounts she had by going through her tax documents, by looking at her mail, she had nothing set up online. I did that all. I went in and set up online banking for her. I set up online access to her other accounts so it was easier for me to manage them. And that's what I do now. I, you know, for all those things that I can set up automatic bill pay, I've done that. I make sure her assisted living bill gets paid every month. I I am in contact with the Social Security Administration. I am her representative payee for Social Security. So I do have to file a report with them annually telling how I spent her Social Security benefits to benefit her. You know, honestly, though, the the most difficult part has came in the earlier stages when she was starting to forget things and realizing it and was frustrated and I was having to be the one to let her know that she was having trouble remembering things, getting her to the doctor, getting that diagnosis, and then slowly starting to take control of her finances, take that control away from her, which was difficult. It's very difficult because I had to essentially be the parent to my parent without letting her feel like I was doing that. Without letting her feel like I was stepping in and taking over because that was frustrating for her. But I had no choice because I didn't want her to be scammed, which she almost was. I didn't want her to to lose all her money writing checks to every organization that sent her letters requesting donations. It's that it happens. It does happen. And older adults are preyed upon. And if they are no longer mentally competent enough to make good financial decisions, they will become victims. And um, so we've covered like the, the fine, financial side of um, um, helping our parents, but how does the personal side look like? Like how does it feel uh, caring for your parents uh, financially, they're, they're managing quote unquote their life in general? So. Um, yeah, could you please also speak to that side for us, like uh, paint a picture for our listeners? Like, It's tough because mm-hmm. I think, as your listeners would know, it can be hard enough mm-hmm. to manage your own finances. But if you're making decisions for yeah. someone else and you don't want to make mistakes, it is certainly tough. It's 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 really hard because I, I had to talk my mother into selling her house, mm-hmm. which she loved to move her in with me because she was no longer capable of taking care of that house. So what I did was focus on the positive. Mom, you'll be living with us, which means, guess what? I'm going to be making meals for you. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Guess what? You get to see the grandkids Mm -hmm. every day. You get to spend more time with me. So making 
focusing on all the positives rather than making her feel like I was taking something away from her, which I was. And she knew that. And she was very well aware that even though she was having problems with her memory, trying to put a positive spin on it. And then when we got to the point that I had to make the decision to put her into full-time assisted living care, which was so difficult. But fortunately, my mother was was so wonderful when it came time to move her, moved her into the facility. And she simply said, okay, so I'm living here now. And I said, yes. And she fit right in. For her, it was great because she's a social person and she was around other people. And that, that worked out well for her. She got to be in a social environment with other people around her where they're doing activities. It was keeping her engaged. Now that she's in the late stages of Alzheimer's, what's really difficult is that she no longer knows who I am. I She knows she That's has a daughter named, it is hard. She knows she has a daughter named Cameron, but when I visit her, she doesn't recognize that I am her daughter. But I do feel like she still recognizes that I am someone who cares and that I am there visiting with her because I love her. I cannot have conversations with her anymore. Every now and then she will say something that makes sense. But usually we can't even have a conversation, which is difficult. It's really hard to watch a parent slowly lose their memory, slowly decline, because it has been a long, slow decline for my mother. It's been 11 years since she was diagnosed. She was 65, so relatively young. Yeah, very young. Yeah, yes, she's 70. She's 76 now. And it's it's just hard to watch to watch someone you love go through this. I feel like it's almost harder for the family members than it is for the person because they get to a point where they, know they don't how, mind. No, they don't. She's just in her own world, and usually she's in a good mood. She's usually pretty happy despite everything that's going on. And that that's what makes it hard, just watching someone kind of slowly wither away and then having to make those decisions for them and hoping that you're making the right decision for them. It's, it's not easy. And I am so grateful that she had the resources to pay for her assisted living because it's a really tough job. I, because she was living with us for a while, you know, I was making sure she took her medicine every day, making those meals for her. It's exhausting. It's draining. It's stressful. And because you are being that parent to a parent, it's hard. It's really wonderful to have professionals who know what they're doing and deal with it day in and day out. I'm, I'm so grateful for that because there's no way I could work full time. There's no way I could be a good mom to my three kids if I were caring for my mother 24 hours a day. So I'm thankful that she does have the resources to pay for that care. But I recognize that a lot of people don't. And it's a very it's a very stressful situation to be in to care for a parent. And my advice to people is find some sort of support. Find, talk to your siblings about having them come in and spend, if they don't live with you, maybe they can use some vacation time to give you a break. Asking, you know, reaching out to the church or the the synagogue or the place of worship where your parents went and asking for volunteers to come in to give you a break. Finding support groups for Alzheimer's dementia or whatever it is. Maybe your parents have Parkinson's or something else like that. Creating a support network for you is essential because it is really hard to do this alone. So, um, Cameron, at the end, I always ask every guest five questions. But um, before I ask those five questions, like, what would you tell to everybody or to everyone who is listening to this right now? Like, what would you tell our listeners at this point in our conversation? Like, what would be your best advice on all those different things that we've talked about today? Don't wait to have these conversations with your parents. As awkward as they might seem, I can tell you from experience the consequences of not having them are much worse. Hmm. And, and you will likely find that your parents will be open to having these conversations with you. Most parents will. 
most parents will. If they're reluctant, don't give up. Hmm. Keep trying. So um, where can people connect with you on the social webs, uh, buy your book, and so on and so forth? So the easiest way to connect with me is on my website, which is CameronHuddleston.com. There's a, there are links to buy the book there, links to connect with me, to email me, all the links to social media, to Twitter, to Facebook. And so if you go to CameronHuddleston.com, I think you can find all the information that you need. And I do have some free resources available that can help people, actually. Great. And so you can go there and take advantage of that, too. <laughs> So um, the first out of the five question is, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? <laughs> so this is a tough question. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a book that I read recently that's written actually by a friend of mine. Her name is Carrie Egan, and we went to college together, and she is a hospice chaplain. So she is the person who was there when people are in hospice at the end of life. And she wrote a book that was basically a collection of stories, conversations she had with her hospice patients, things that they wish they had done, regretted, were happy they had done at the end of life. It's a beautiful book. It's called On Living. And anyone should read it because it, because these are stories of people who are at the end of life it offers so much advice for the things you should be doing while you are alive so that you don't die with regrets. Absolutely beautiful book. I loved it. I would recommend it to anyone. Another book that I read recently is uh, Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection, mm-hmm. which if you are someone who is a perfectionist <laughs> or or has those tendencies, and, and it's really good because it helps you realize it's okay to not be perfect and walks you through a lot of steps so that you're not putting too much pressure on ourselves, which is what so many of us do. We put this unnecessary pressure on ourselves to be perfect or close to perfect. And it gives you, it gives you permission to, to not be perfect, to make mistakes because we're all going to make them. So that was, that was a very helpful book. And I think uh, still one of my favorite pieces of fiction, which I'm sure a lot of people probably would name as one of their favorite books is To Kill a Mockingbird. It's such mm-hmm. a classic. Properly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And my my father, who is no longer living, he passed away at 61 without a will, even though he was an attorney. He, yes, he was an attorney. Right. And of course he loved that book because the book is about an attorney. And he actually was in, he wasn't an actor at all. He didn't even do it as a hobby, but Our local community theater did put on a production of To Kill a Mockingbird. And so he played the lead role of Atticus Finch because he went as an attorney. And, of course, he just had to play that role. And so there's that extra special connection for me. The book reminds me of my father playing that role. And it's it's just the book had such a good message. And I, it's still one of my favorites to this day. <laughs> so um, the second question is, What are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? <laughs> this one's harder because I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if I have a favorite, but since it's the holidays right now, and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we're talking in December, so it's holiday yeah. season. <laughs> I have this favorite holiday movie that I watch year after year, and it's Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase, and I love that movie. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> It's 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 not deep, by <laughs> but it's so fun, and it's just my favorite holiday movie to watch every year. So yes, I would have to admit, Christmas Vacation is one of my favorite movies to watch. You know, another favorite that I have is When Harry Met Sally. It's Meg Ryan and um, Billy Crystal. She's a journalist. She goes to New York. I just I love I love that movie. And gosh, a third one. A third That's, one, yeah. Okay, so here's another one. And, and all of these, none of these movies are particularly deep or thought-provoking, but they're great entertainment. 
I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I love <laughs> all the Star Wars movies. But the first one is still my favorite. That original Star Wars, I love it. Okay, I didn't like the the number one, two, and three that came out later. <laughs> but four, five, six, and on in the new ones. But the original one, it's still a favorite. And I can't even tell you how many times I've watched that movie. Again and again, I've watched it with my kids, and I love it. <laughs> So um, the third question is, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? So recently, my husband and I bought a Roomba, one of those vacuums that go around your house or apartment. (laughs) Okay, it sounds silly, but that thing has been so useful. We got it on sale. It was on sale on Amazon during one of those long holiday weekends where everything goes on sale. And I love it. It just zips around my house and sucks everything up and and certainly saves me some time from having to vacuum. And it's been a very useful product. (laughs) Like, is it like a special brand or anything? It's just just Amazon. It's it's the Roomba. It's the Roomba brand. It's like this little round vacuum that zips around. Yes. But I tell you also, this is this is sort of a product, sort of a service. Um, we have a health savings account through my husband's work. We have retirement accounts, but I love the health savings account. And I don't think I don't think the health savings account gets enough credit in the financial media press. It's so awesome. It's for savings for healthcare costs. And thank goodness for that health savings account because we have three kids. We have a lot of healthcare expenses and the money is always there to pay for it because my husband has contributions coming out of his paycheck every month into that account. And so the money's there. If we don't use it in one year, it's still there the next year. If you don't use it while you're young, you can still access some money in retirement, use it to pay for healthcare expenses. I love, love, love the health savings account. <laughs> so um, the fourth question is, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their career, relationships, travel, time. So speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us. You know, I think one of the the biggest realizations I have had recently, or I would say in the past few years, especially with social media, it's so easy to log on to Facebook or Instagram and see all these things that people are doing and think that your life just doesn't measure up, that, mm. it's, that you're not getting to go to all these awesome places, that you don't have all these things. And I think a lot of us feel that naturally. You know, we look at our peers and we compare ourselves to what they have and social media has made that worse. But, you know, I've and I think sometimes, too, we might set our own goals based on what other people are doing. Oh, they have that. So I have to do that. They've achieved this in their career. So I have to achieve this in my career. But you have to look at your own situation. You know, I, as a personal finance journalist, I can look around and see the things that other people in my area have accomplished. And it's easy for me to say, wow, look at all that person has done. I want to do that. But then I need to step back and say, is that what I really want? Hmm. Do you know, is that is that my goal or am I looking at what someone else has achieved and and saying I need to do that? Not because it's what I want to do, but because of what other people are doing. And I feel Mm. like I have to do it, too. And it it does take some soul searching because we are constantly inundated with these messages, whether it's from the media or social media, that we have to be something, a certain person, do a certain thing. But we need to step back and say, is this what I want or am I just wanting to do this because other people are doing it? Mm. Very powerful. Very yes. Powerful. So it's so it's so important to really get clear on your own goals and your own values. And I tell this to my kids all the time, you know, especially my youngest. My daughters are 15 and 13, and I've been talking to them about money since they were very young. And those lessons have sunk in. My son is seven and he looks around at his friends and sees what they have and always wants what they have. And I say to him, 
do you want this because it's what you want or because your friends have it? And, and I, he's seven, so it doesn't always sink in. Now <laughs> he, he's a natural spinner. And, and so he just, he, he just always wants what everyone has. And so I'm trying to teach him now at starting at a young age that, you know, just because someone else has it doesn't mean you need it to. Mm. And it's, it's a hard, it's a really difficult impulse to combat because we do want what other people have. And I'm trying to teach them at a young age because I grew up thinking, watching my own father, who I think was very concerned about what other people thought about him. And so that was a lesson I learned, you know, what other people thought about me mattered. And I'm, I'm really trying to hard, you know, to, to stop feeling that way, to just focus on my own goals, my own values and trying to teach that to my kids. And it's it's difficult to get over that impulse, but it's something that I have been working on and and putting a lot of effort into. So um, the last question for the day is, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Start saving sooner. So <laughs> really, I, I have been playing catch up you know, in my 30s and 40s with my retirement savings account, because in my 20s, I didn't do a good job. I did not start writing about personal finance until my late 20s. So in my early years, when I wasn't making much money, I thought there was no room in my budget to save. And so I wasn't saving a lot. But if I had started sooner, it it doesn't take a lot. It really doesn't take a lot. If you start at a young age, thanks to that wonderful power of compounding, even a small amount of money, can grow to a large amount thanks to interest, your money will grow over time. So I really wish I had started saving for retirement sooner because now I'm having to work a lot harder to catch up to have enough retirement savings. And I do, I save, you know, I contribute the maximum that I can every year to my retirement account. I'm self-employed, so I use a SEP IRA and I, you know, contribute the maximum that it's allowed based on the income that I get. But it would have been easier if I had started saving sooner. <laughs> so, uh, Cameron, <laughs> thank you so, so much um, for sharing your story, your personal story with us and sharing your amazing advice on personal finance with all of our listeners. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. So uh, thank you so much for this episode. Thank you. And uh, go talk to your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out. <laughs>